If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Calling all History Extra podcast listeners. We want to hear from you. We're currently conducting some research about our podcast, so please enter our survey for your chance to win a £100 Waterstones gift card. It shouldn't take any longer than 10 minutes, and as a thank you for taking part, UK residents who complete the survey will be given the opportunity to enter our prize draw for the chance to win one of two £100 e-gift cards to spend at Waterstones. The survey will be available to complete until 11.59pm on Sunday the 4th of October 2020. You can find the link in our episode description. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Frederick Logeval, the author of a new two-part biography of John F. Kennedy. The first volume, published earlier this month, explores the first four decades of the future president's life and the way that the young man, nicknamed Jack, formed his view of the world around him. Our world history editor, Matt Elton, caught up with Frederick to find out more. Your new biography is split across two volumes. Um, Could you just talk us through which years this first volume covers and why you think the early years of JFK's life warrant particularly close attention? Yeah, so this volume, the first of two, uh, takes us from his birth in 1917, just on the, basically on the cusp of America's entry into World War I. And it takes us, it then ends at the end of 1956. Uh, which is when he, I argue, makes the firm decision, I'm definitely running for president in 1960. So it seems like a a good point at which to end this first volume. And I guess I decided that the early years matter a lot for him, as maybe they do for all of us. Maybe all of us are fundamentally shaped, or let me say most of us, fundamentally shaped by our teens, by our 20s. If that's true for most of us, I think it's probably true for him as well. And so I thought I need to delve into that period. Moreover, it's when he serves in the Second World War in the Pacific. It's when he publishes his first book, which is his undergraduate thesis at Harvard. Uh, It's when he experiences personal tragedies with the loss of his his older brother in particular in in that um, period. So I thought, I want to do this. And finally, 
fantastic source materials for the early years. His letters, his family's letters, uh, other documentation. It's really rich. Hmm. For people who might not know, I suppose, um, when and where was JFK born and into what kind of family was he born? So he's born in uh, in Brookline, just across the river from where I'm sitting now. So basically a, a part of Boston, you could say. Uh, in 1917, as I said, it was an Irish Catholic family. He was the second of nine children. His parents, Joe and Rose, uh, they were determined to have a large family. And by golly, they had a large family. Uh, and at that point in 1917... They were not yet wealthy, but over the course of about the next decade, uh, Joe would amass um, a, a huge fortune, uh, partly, mostly on Wall Street, also in uh, real estate investments in Hollywood as a as a film mogul. Uh, he would become extremely wealthy, uh, and uh, the family would then relocate at some point uh, in the in in the mid twenties to New York State, uh, but those Boston roots, I think, very much remained in them. To what extent can we trace um, his later international sensibility to his Irish Catholic heritage, and also, I suppose, specifically to his mother's sensibility? Yeah, I think it's very important. I think that we trace, he does have an international sensibility. I think it's one of his defining characteristics. I think it comes in part from that Irish Catholic um, heritage, no question. Uh, a, a sense that you needed to to look to the wider world, because after all, they had come from Ireland themselves not too long ago. And then his mother, uh, who often doesn't does not get enough. Um, I don't think she gets enough credit in some of the literature for her role in Jack's development. I think she, in particular, was fascinated by the outside world. I think she helped instill in him. This interest in what's going on, especially, I think, in Europe. He was always especially attached, and, and in particular, England, it's fair to say. Um, but it comes from those two sources. And then I would also say that his own travels as a university student further hones this. And then maybe finally his reading, he became a voracious reader. And that, too, uh, instilled this, this international interest and sensibility. I had no idea that he suffered from repeated illnesses as a child. Um, what did he experience? And do you think this also shaped his later personality? Yeah, I mean, it's still a little unclear, believe it or not, precisely what was going on. It's, 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 it, we do know that he had every childhood illness imaginable. We do know that he would later be diagnosed with Addison's disease. He had severe back problems. Uh, throughout his life. He had um, gastrointestinal issues. But the point is, he was he was in bed a lot. Uh, he missed a lot of school days. Uh, in those days, there weren't too many things one could do if you were in bed other than read. Uh, and he became very devoted, especially to European history. Uh, he was drawn to Winston Churchill's writings early on. That's a that's a fascinating little uh, relationship, if you will, or at least a, a tie between the two of them. Um, and the illnesses had that effect, and I think they also they also gave him a certain empathy. Um, 
that he showed in, in various areas of his life, that is a capacity to see what others might be experiencing, in part because he had been through some of this himself. Hmm. We should talk about his father, who is a significant figure in this first book. Um, what part did he play in driving JFK's interest in politics? Because I know you also say that's possible to overstate. Yeah. Well, his father is a towering figure in all of the kids' lives, all nine children. Um, he is the dominant parent. There's no question about it in terms of his um, commitment to their futures, in terms of driving them and pushing them even more so than Rose. Um, and he's very important to Jack. Uh, at the same time, and this is one of his winning qualities as far as I'm concerned, Joe Sr., the father, never insisted that the children follow this or that career path, that they have this or that political philosophy. Um, I do think he wanted them to make up their own minds, at least to a degree. And in fact, um, I think Jack did, maybe more so than his older brother, Joe Jr., who was the golden child, who was the one that was supposed to become president, if you will, he was much more unwilling than Jack was to separate himself from his father. Uh, but that said, um, and we can talk about that schism between father and son, if that's not too strong a word, we should still know, we should still acknowledge that the father uh, helped um, shape who young JFK became uh, in good ways and maybe in some not so good ways. Hmm. One of the ways he helped uh, his son was through the contacts that he had that JFK was able to visit while he was traveling. Where did he travel during yeah. the 30s and what kind of experience did he have during those trips? Well, so he was particularly interested in uh, Europe, traveled, I think, predominantly in Europe in that time, beginning in 1937 about three months with his good friend Lem Billings. Uh, they hit many of, the, of the, the countries of Europe. And then after his father becomes ambassador, it turns out to be a disastrous tenure as America's ambassador to, to the court of St. James's. Then, as you say, he uses his father's contacts, especially in 1939, right up to the eve of war. And I mean, right up to the eve in the sense that he's in Berlin just a few days before war breaks out. But he uses his father's contacts to, to visit, I think it's about 12 countries in five or six months in 1939. He basically gets a, a kind of a leave of absence, if you will, or a sabbatical from his undergraduate studies at Harvard, travels, sees places, talks to people, and this can then this then continues to a lesser degree in 1940, 41. And then, of course, he has his experience in the South Pacific in World War II. Which we'll talk about in a second. You mentioned Harvard there as well. What kind of student was he? He was a pretty indifferent student for the first two years. It's a four-year degree, of course. Um, and um, I think he is pretty forgettable. I don't think his professors, his first and second year, remember him much, would have remembered him if he had uh, not become, um, you know, president, uh, or a, at least a visible figure. But he really begins in what we call the junior year, in the, in the third year, and then as a, in his fourth year, he becomes much more serious as a student. We see it in his marks, 
his grades. We see it in, in the kind of papers he produces, and some of those papers are available at the Kennedy Library. They make for really interesting reading, culminating, of course, in his grand project, which is the senior thesis, uh, which he spends several months working on in his final year. It's an, it's an examination of British appeasement, the development of British appeasement policy in the 1930s, and becomes a book, a kind of minor bestseller uh, soon after his graduation. But I would say, I would say not a very good student to begin with, much more committed, showing much more of his talent, which I think is there all the way through in the latter part. Mm. And he's in Westminster while the appeasement uh, episode unfolds, isn't he? He sure is. I mean, one of the things that's so interesting about this guy it, to me is he's this sort of zealig, zealig figure in the sense that he pops up at various places in, let's say, 38, 39, 40, um, uh, uh, that one would not expect uh, an undergraduate student, even one who's well-connected as he is. His father is now the ambassador in London. Even so, it's pretty amazing to me uh, how often we see uh, young JFK able to, what's the word, hobnob or, 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 or you know, uh, communicate with, uh, interact with uh, notable players both here and in the years to come. What do you think drove that? Was it just that he had this access to these connections or is, was it his, his shrewd political, you know... It's a, it's a that's a really good question. I think it's I think it's both. I mean, I think the access matters. His father, especially as his ambassadorship, you know, goes south, becomes more and more fraught. I think he, on some part of Ambassador Kennedy, says, "I have to now live through my sons. Uh, my political ambitions are probably shot." Henceforth, it's going to be Joe Jr. and Jack. So he makes those connections, uh, and he uh, initiates them to some extent. But I also think we should acknowledge that Jack himself is increasingly driven. Uh, he is increasingly fascinated by world politics. Uh, he becomes a confirmed Anglophile, which is kind of interesting for an Irish, Irish Catholic he is. He, I think he he connects with especially upper class Englishmen and women, and comes to admire their kind of you know their self possession, their insouciance, their kind of dry wit. Those things that we associate with, um, uh, I guess we could call them posh uh, uh, posh Englishmen. I think he he just connects with them. So he had, but my point is, he has this drive within him that is also important in addition to these connections from his dad. Hmm. At what point did the schism between him and his dad really start escalating, and did it cause problems? I think it. I think it started the the the, the division between the two of them, which I, I find so interesting, and and it was uh, really fun to write about. Um, it's a process, needless to say. I think in, say, 1938, there's very da little daylight between them. Um, Joe Kennedy is then a supporter of Neville Chamberlain's uh, efforts to uh, prevent a war through appeasement. I think Jack kind of agrees. 
Um, but in 39, I would say, is when you be, you begin to see the, um, the stirrings of a difference. Jack is able to see a more complicated uh, world than his father is. Uh, he, Jack is more comfortable with clashing national interests in a way that I don't think Joe ever is. And then in 1940, it becomes more pronounced. I think Joe Kennedy is still absolutely committed to doing everything he can to keep America out of the war. And JFK, Jack, is thinking, I think we might need to get into this thing. Uh, it's so important that the Germans in particular be defeated. To a lesser extent, the Japanese are also, they also need to be defeated. And maybe this can't happen without the United States. That, I think, he believes by the end of, say, 1940, and then well in advance of Pearl Harbor in December of 41, I think John F. Kennedy is a confirmed interventionist. His dad never is. The war obviously occupies a central a role in your book. Um, how did JFK enter active service and what were his sort of defining experiences of, of the war? Yeah, he enters active service uh, in 1942. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting that the father, again, to keep coming back to Joe, and we have to, the father is so anxious to keep both of his sons out of the service, and yet both of them, both of them enter uh, willingly. In fact, they, they seek to enter service in 1942, and they both do. Ironically, one of the reasons they do, although I don't think it's what drives them, but his, their father had developed a reputation for cowardice. There was a sense that as ambassador in 1940, he was fleeing the bombs dropping on London for his house in Windsor in the countryside. And part of their motivation, again, secondary, but somewhere in the hierarchy, causal hierarchy, was a sense that they needed to show the world that the Kennedys are not yellow. So it happens in 42 for both of them. And there is a competitive element here, by the way, the two brothers always. Um, and then um, the, your second question, uh, Jack uh, enters combat. He enters the combat zone, the war zone, in the Solomons, in the South Pacific, in the spring of 1943, in a serious way, winter and spring of 43. And then, of course, has his episode, PT-109, in which his patrol boat is rammed by a Japanese destroyer. That happens uh, in the summer of 1943. Uh, and that's a, a monumental uh, event in his life. Hmm. Um, I didn't know the details of that particular episode. Um, what happened? It's an extraordinary yeah. story. I mean, it, it really is. And of course, uh, one could make a legitimate argument that Lieutenant Kennedy should never have allowed his book to be rammed by a Japanese destroyer. Uh, so it's it's hard, it seems to me, at least on that basic level, to commend him for what occurred. It's in the aftermath of that ramming when, really, by all accounts, they should have all been killed, all the members of, of Kennedy's um, patrol boat. But miraculously, uh, only two of them were killed, and the rest of them, made their way to a tiny little island. Uh, and I think Kennedy's actions in that week, it lasted about a week until they were rescued. I think they can legitimately be called uh, heroic, um, or certainly 
if we don't want to go that far, commendable actions by the skipper of this crew in helping to save his men, in uh, swimming miles and miles each day to try to come up with a, a, a rescue, and eventually they succeed. Um, and of course, this then gets because it's the son of the, the the former ambassador, Joe Kennedy is a well-known name. This gets lots of press um, and becomes uh, front-page news in the United States. And there's no doubt that it later helps Kennedy's political career. Mm. As you've alluded to a couple of times, his elder brother wasn't so lucky. Um, how did he die? And what was the impact that it had on the future course of the whole family, I suppose? It's the, the story of Joe Jr. is a really interesting and ultimately tragic story because he is the golden child. He's the firstborn. He is movie star handsome. He is, uh, he is ambitious. He's driven. Uh, he's aggressive in some ways that are not perhaps so, so good. Um, and he's killed in a kind of suicidal uh, bombing mission uh, in 1944 um, turns out to be a completely useless operation and an unnecessary operation uh, against German installations in France. Um, and you know, uh, I don't have evidence for this, but I speculate in the book about why he would volunteer for such a dangerous mission. He had been promised the opportunity to. to to go back to the United States, um, but he he decides that he needs to do this. I don't think we'll ever know exactly why, but I think that the competition with Jack, Jack had now, uh, as we've seen, had this supposedly heroic service in the South Pacific. I think some part of Joe Jr. wanted to, to match that. He wanted his father in particular to be proud of him. Um, and then he meets his death. And of course, the question then becomes, what does it mean for Jack's career? And it's interesting to speculate, if Joe Jr. had returned from the war alive, would JFK, the fellow we know as JFK, would he have still gone into politics? It's hard to say, because Joe was the one destined for greatness as far as the family was concerned. But I argue in the book that the person with the more, uh, with the better attributes uh, the, the, the better means to, to get to the pinnacle was actually Jack. Uh, we can't know, but it's certainly the case that Joe's death uh, caused his father, caused their father to say, Jack, you know, I really, you, you really need to do this now. I think Jack had his own reasons for becoming a politician. It's not just about his father, but it's, but it's in the mix for sure. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. He's, he's somebody who cares about politics and about government in a way that I think is, frankly, has a message for our own day today and is a message I think we need to hear, recognizing also that he was a flawed individual. He had missteps as a, as a president. He had successes as a president. I don't want this to be in any way a kind of hagiography. But there is a powerful message there, I think. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, 
the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. You write that in November 1946, uh, that marked the end of the remarkable early life of JFK and his more extraordinary public life was about to begin. I mean, what happened? And yeah. I'm also interested in and how early on was his political life also his public life? Oh, yeah, that's, those are really good questions. I, I think, you know, I think even before Joe Jr.'s death, he was talking with a girlfriend of his about his future. And they both said, you know, maybe maybe politics should be what I do. Um, and so, you know, he's building towards this. He's long been interested in politics. Uh, his concentration, his major at Harvard was government. Uh, his grandfather had been a, a, a his maternal grandfather was a, a notable Boston political political figure. So he might have been driving towards this. But there is an opening in the 11th district uh, in Massachusetts for the House of Representatives, maybe facilitated by his father. Uh, separate, an interesting story there. And Jack jumps into this race and uh, proves to be not a particularly good speaker. Uh, he's got a lot to learn, but voters, this is pretty interesting. It's clear that voters take to this guy. There's something about him, even as a young politician, that voters just like. There is a certain reticence, a certain shyness, but also um, a, a charisma and a charm that comes through, even in these halting speeches. And it may be notable that female voters in particular, um, even in that first race in 1946, uh, are drawn to his candidacy, and he gets a lot of support um, from female voters. Mm. One of the ways he's often, I suppose, reduced almost is he's kind of uh, portrayed as being a womanizer. Um, yeah. This was the case, though, wasn't it? He 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 was known at the time for yeah. for that kind of behaviour. Yeah, he he was, um, and I think it's a difficult part of the story. Um, I think it will be a difficult part of my volume too, to be honest. 
So the second volume of my book, which will take the story from 1957 when he begins to run for the presidency, and it'll end with his assassination in late 1963, um, you know, I think it'll be an important theme there. At that point, I think it becomes reckless, at least to a degree. And I'm still researching this part of the book, so so it's tentative. But it seems to become reckless in a way that I don't think it is earlier in his life. But you're quite right. I think this is something that we see in John F. Kennedy from an early age. A deep interest in, in girls and in women. Uh, and um, he, I think, is taught by, maybe that's the wrong word, his father strongly says to both of his older sons, to Joe Jr. and to Jack, in effect, I expect you to to follow in my footsteps here, uh, to view women as objects to be conquered. Uh, and, you know, Joe, when the, when, the, when, the, when the boys were young, Joe would even bring mistresses home, which must have been so confusing to them, to see their father bring uh, a woman into the house who's not um, their mother, who's also there, um, that must have been confusing. And I say that not to excuse what goes on, because if I'm going to argue on the one hand that Jack Kennedy is his own man when it comes to politics and his career, he could certainly also be his own man when it comes to how to treat women. So I can't have it both ways. But the, the, the father's example certainly... Um, certainly, uh, certainly matters. Mm. At what point uh, does Jackie enter the story? She enters the story in 1952. Uh, that's when they really meet. Uh, that's when they begin to date. It's during his Senate campaign. Uh, and so they don't see a heck of a lot of each other in the early going. I think he's, some, he's ambivalent about whether he wants to get married at this point. Uh, I think his father, again, is urging him, basically saying, look, serious politicians in America, especially if they want to advance as politicians in America, they need to be married and they need to have uh, a family. Uh, and you need to start thinking about this. Uh, and, you know, Jackie is, she's got a lot of qualities that he loves. She's beautiful. She's refined. Uh, she speaks foreign languages, and he does not. He's always got a tin ear for languages. So there's a lot about her that he really respects. They also have a very similar sense of humor, a kind of absurdist uh, sense of humor, a sense of irony that that he treasures in her. And so, in many respects, a really good match. In other respects, less so maybe. She's not very interested in politics, unlike his sisters, who breathe politics just love everything about it. Jackie's never that way. Um, but they proceed, of course, to get married in 1953. It's a huge sort of society wedding. Uh, and Joe Kennedy manages the PR beautifully of this wedding. Uh, and it becomes a sort of storybook affair for a lot of Americans, and even for some people uh, outside the country. And of course, when they become, when he becomes president, that she becomes first lady. It's a, I don't know what to call it, a global power couple, I guess we could say. 
I'm glad you mentioned his sisters there, actually, because something the book does really well for me is kind of brings their stories to life in a way that I hadn't really ever seen elsewhere. How, how do you think we should uh, yeah. consider their role in this, in this life? I think they're really important. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a close knit family. That's something we should, we should note here is that even if the marriage between the parents is in some ways a dysfunctional one, is certainly an unorthodox one. Uh, this is a family that is very close, um, partly maybe because of its size, but also because of the relations among the members. And I think that the sisters um, are really formidable people in their own way. Um, I think in a different age, as I say at one point, Eunice would have been a would have been a superb politician herself, really intelligent, really shrewd, understood the political game, uh, was a very effective speaker when she appeared at in her brother's. Uh, campaigns, um, but they all they all see this as a family enterprise. And one of the things that happens, as I write about, even in that forty six that first campaign, is that the family members fan out in the neighborhoods. You know, they're knocking on doors, they're passing out leaflets, they're giving speeches, and that continues in the in the fifty two Senate campaign. Which is which is an epic victory against Henry Cabot Lodge for this for the Senate seat in Massachusetts, and then to be discussed in my next volume uh, in 1960, the sisters uh, and of course Bobby Kennedy, the brother, the, the the older of the younger brothers, is really important in uh, in the development of JFK's career. But they all they all play a role. I might also just mention here that Rose, as the matriarch, is terrific on the campaign trail. She had been involved as a kid with her father, joining him at events, so she knew how the political game was played. She was a real asset for Jack and his campaigns. Are there any other political episodes uh, in the period you cover that were particularly formative, do you think? I mean, I think I, I think as we've said that the the, the the war experience is 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 obviously I think for me supreme. Uh, I, I think that the travels, which we've also talked about, are highly important. I think the passing of Joe Junior uh, is is a colossal event. His closest sibling, the one he feels closest to, who he has the, a special rapport with is Kathleen, known as Kick, uh, sister. And we haven't talked about her, but I think she's a, a, a really important presence in his life. She is killed in a, in a plane crash in 1948. The, the, the tragedies that this family has endured, it's really something to behold. And so what it means for Jack Kennedy is that he's lost, you could say, the two siblings who are closest to him in, in every sense of that term. He's effectively lost another sibling, which is Rosemary, who uh, underwent a disastrous lobotomy uh, in late 1941 that went horribly awry. And she came out of this procedure, uh, which was supposed to make her it was supposed to improve her, uh, in, in, if you can imagine, 
bizarre to think now, but it went terribly wrong. And so he effectively, and she was the one, she was only 18 months or so younger than he was. He effectively lost her as well. So I guess I would say on your list or, or in response to this, that, that those tragedies are all, also really important to his, to, to shaping him. Hmm. I'm really interested by the idea that uh, the more that we understand JFK's coming of age, as you write in the book, the more we understand America yeah. um, more broadly in this period. To what extent can we track those two parallel stories? Uh, I mean, this was one of the things that um, it just hit me one day. You know, you this I'm sure you're the same way I am about this. You're walking down the street uh, and you're thinking about stuff and all of a sudden you get this idea, this epiphany or whatever. And I, it occurred to me that, in fact, I could do this as kind of twin narratives so that I could tell the story of JFK's rise and map onto it the story of America's rise, first to great power status and then to superpower status. Because the half century that he lived is really when I would argue this extraordinary thing happens. And I do think there is this double payoff, as I, I think I say in the preface, that you understand Kennedy by contextualizing him, seeing him as a, 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 product, as a product of his time and place. And you understand America through the lens of Kennedy and of the Kennedys. So the debate prior to World War II between so-called isolationists and interventionists. The, the tumult of World War II, which makes the United States a, a colossus on the global stage. The early Cold War, where he is, a, he is a kind of early Cold Warrior, unlike his father. McCarthyism and the, and the domestic Cold War, where, again, the Kennedys are on different sides and, and are very much connected with McCarthy. You know, in these and other ways, at least this is my hope, this is the conceit of the book. Uh, readers can actually um, also get a better sense of the middle decades of the 20th century, uh, especially in terms of the U.S., but also maybe more broadly through, uh, of all things, a biography. Did you change your view of him as a result of researching and writing these books, I suppose? Yeah, I think my view of him changed, at least to a degree. I'd already written a fair amount about him. Uh, especially in the context of Vietnam and his policies on Vietnam, uh, more broadly on the Cold War. Um, so some of this, some of these things, I already had an inkling of. But I think, I think I became more convinced that he he was a serious guy from an earlier point than I think many biographers believe. It's not to say he didn't like a good time. It's not to say that there wasn't a kind of playboy quality to him. But I, I think it surprised me the degree to which in 1939 and 40, let's say, he was already asking questions, for example, about democracy. Can, can democracy survive the authoritarian and the fascist, uh, the, the, the German and the Japanese threat. What does it take for democracy to survive? He was interested in that question from an early point. He produces this first book. Um, he's, he's somebody who cares about politics and about government 
in a way that I think is, frankly, has a message for our own day today um, and is a message I think we need to hear, recognizing also that he was a flawed individual. He had missteps as a, as a president. He had successes as a president. I don't want this to be in any way a kind of hagiography. But there is a powerful message there, I think. I think the thing that's really powerful for me about John F. Kennedy as an emerging politician is a sense that he has, which I write about in the book, that, you know, in a democracy, it's ultimately critical that we are able to compromise, that we, we have to be able to see our opponents as adversaries, not enemies, that nobody has a monopoly on truth. He said at one point to his good English friend, David Ormsby Gore, he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, this is, I think, in 1955 or thereabouts. So it's before he becomes president. And of course, Ormsby Gore is later the ambassador during the Kennedy administration. But he says, David, I'm not sure that I'm cut out to be a politician. And Ormsby Gore says, why? He says, well, it's because I so often can see the merits in the other side's arguments. Um, and it just seems to me that in this um, cynical age in which we now live and in which there's, there are deep partisan divisions, um, it's important to recognize this. I don't think it's naive, a naive position. Some might say that it is. Uh, I think it's ultimately critical that we be able to do what he is trying in his own in his own way, I guess, uh, to do as a young politician. That was Frederick Logoval. The first volume of his JFK biography is on sale now, published in the UK by Viking. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear James Evans speaking about the Mayflower. (laughs) 